Okay, let's open up our Bibles. We're uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're looking at verse 25, uh, verses 25 through 32. And, you know, this week's text builds upon last week's um, text. Last week we saw Paul was saying that Christians are to live different lives because why? Because we are now different people. God in his grace has caused us to, to put off, uh, to, to, to create us as new people in Christ. And therefore we are to put off the old self and to put on the new self created in the likeness of, of God. And now today he challenges us in, in how we're to do this as we live together in community. It's a, a challenge, I think, for all of us here this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us your word that illumines our hearts, hearts that have been given new life through the Holy Spirit. We depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to illumine us, to point us, to guide us, direct us, to challenge us, to rebuke us, and yes, to lift us up and strengthen us. We are a needy people. We are in desperate need of your grace, afresh this morning. We pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to find who we are here this morning by asking one question. Does anybody here like tofu? Got some tofu fans? All right. Um, do you know what, that, what tofu really is? It's really bean curds. Not all that uh, exciting. Bean curds. What they do is they take soybean, soybean milk, and then they press all the liquids out of it, and you're left with this kind of jiggly, whitish sort of block of stuff. Tofu is pretty much flavorless. What gives flavor to tofu is whatever it soaks in. So if you were to soak tofu in curry sauce, it'll taste like curry sauce. If you were to soak tofu in, in maple syrup, it would taste like maple syrup. And if you were to soak tofu in river water, it would taste like river water, which is what some people think it tastes like anyway. I'm not bashing people who like tofu. I enjoy tofu. might even have it for lunch today. But the point here is this. I might. All right. Uh, people in churches are similar to tofu. 
we soak in, we absorb, and we become seasoned and flavored by, by our surroundings. Paul begins his text by saying, Therefore, having put away falsehood, that is, having put away the old self, this is a reality in your life if you're a Christian, you have put away the old self, and now you have the new self and the new ways of, of soaking in uh, godliness and righteousness. We're to no longer soak in the way of darkness that leads to death, but we're to soak in the very life of Christ, which gives us life and causes us to be flavorful. Not just on our own, but when we're in the presence of other people. So in other words, Paul is saying we need to soak in the gospel. When we soak in the gospel, it changes us. And specifically, the change that Paul is addressing here this morning is how we live in community with each other. In these verses, Paul describes some keys to living in Christian community. And the overarching truth that we see that allows us to live out these keys is that we are to uh, live out what? We're to live out the gospel, the gospel of grace. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 32. He says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then he says, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. He's calling them to do what? Remember the grace that God has shown you. More than that, remember the grace that God has placed you in. Soak in it. Absorb it. Allow it to penetrate your very life. You know, we have a number of core values here at Grace Church. If you sign up for our new members class or if you've been through our members class, you will have gone through our vision and our mission. And, and we'd also come to see we've got some core values. It's interesting how we define core values in that booklet. It says that core values are the foundational, non-negotiable values which infuse the body life of Grace Presbyterian Church. And one of the core, core values of Grace Presbyterian Church is that we are to be a gospel-centered or grace-centered community. That is, in all that we do as we live together as God's people, we're going to flourish and have success. That God calls us to have success as we live together in a grace-centered manner. Unfortunately, many churches, uh, we don't experience that in many churches. Many, in many churches, people put up walls and, and there becomes divisions and rivalries and there becomes a bitterness and there's gossiping and there's um, every, sometimes people try to promote their own agenda within churches. We see that. A recent survey of 469 formerly churched adults, that is those who um, formerly were adults who formerly went to Protestant churches, but who, who now no longer go to them. They were queried and they found out but roughly 37 percent of them have withdrawn from the church due to disenchantment. Disenchantment includes things where they see in churches uh, hypocrisy or where there's cliques in, in churches or where people are seen as being condemning or judgmental. Those who are inside the church felt as if they were outside the church. In other words, what we see is, is the gospel of grace is not being lived out in community. They're experiencing perhaps some of the things that Paul is warning against here in our passage. So this morning, Grace Church, 
we are to soak in the grace of God. We are to become so flavored with God's grace that, so that we live as a grace-centered community. That's what Paul's getting at. And he gives us some keys for doing this. The first key is truthfulness. We see that in verse 25. He says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. My friends, healthy community cannot exist without truth. Communities are built upon mutual trust. Uh, and when that mutual trust is gone, it tears apart community. And it's also very, very hard to reinvigorate once that trust has been lost. What we see is that lying here is what Paul is getting at is destructive both to the self and to relationships. Regarding the self, Immanuel Kant wrote these words. By a lie, a man throws away and annihilates his dignity as a man. But not just the self is destroyed. Paul, Paul could have said what? He could have said, you know what, don't lie, why? Because it's a sin. You're violating one of the Ten Commandments, right? But instead, Paul focuses upon the reason for the prohibition. Lying tears apart what Christ has brought together. Paul writes that the reason for not lying is we are members one of another. Throughout this whole letter, right, on, on, on our identity, I hope you've gotten this, is that the, the picture that Paul is painting is that your salvation is in a solitary salvation. You've been brought into the body of Christ and that you are members of his body. Each one of you plays an important, vital role. You are going to flourish as an individual in Christ as you are in Christ's body and in his, in his community. And so with this in mind, therefore, uh, as John McKay says, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. Why does Paul focus on lies? Well, because lies distort reality and they're actually a part of every other falsehood or sin that's a part of the Christian life. A tax cheat isn't just a thief. He's a liar. An adulterer isn't, isn't, isn't just a sexually immoral, he's a liar, right? There's lies behind all of our sins. Lies are the currency of a life lived in rebellion to God. And so the only place one can live a meaningful life is when, when we're lived in the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth and the way and the life. Jesus is truth and our life is found in him. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, with regards to lying, we tend to do two things. We tend to pad our record or we tend to protect our record. The braggart. Maybe you're a kid in school and there's that, you know, that usually a boy or sometimes a girl. You're telling your story and they interrupt you to tell you how much better their story is, right? They tend to brag about things. The braggart is trying to build himself up. He's trying to pad his own record. So, too, the person who lies on their resume, they're trying to pad their own record. But we also tend to protect our record. The child who spills milk and then blames it on his sister is trying to protect his record. He doesn't want mommy or daddy to punish them. He's kind of hoping for dessert later that evening. And we can bring this into the church. We can put on facades where we, where we try to pat or protect our identity before other Christians. Many people don't get very much involved in the church life because they don't 
they want to try to avoid having to pad or protect them. They think that being a part of a church is about putting on an outside air and doing all the right things. And, uh, and, but the, the truth is that, that this very idea of, of padding and protecting, or the very idea, rather, of, of keeping yourself away from the body of Christ is in itself a way of padding and protecting. You're saying, I, I don't want to get too close. I'm going to keep people at arm's length. Um, if they were to get too close, that's a lot of work. Uh, and they'd also get to know the real me, right? And so I'm not going to get too close. And we think that this is an appropriate means. We feel as if, well, this is a good way of keeping our identity safe and secure. But what you're really missing out on is life. You're missing out on reality. You're missing out on being real. You're missing out on, on grace in your life. You're missing out on, on community. God's gift to his people is the body of Christ and the community of grace that you are to experience there. See, the gospel allows you to be known, warts and all, and welcomed and accepted and appreciated. And there's a certain joy and delight that takes place when that takes place. Consider Paul. Remember earlier in this letter, in in chapter 3, verse 8, Check him out. Is he putting up? A, is he is he protecting himself or anything? And, and no, he's, he says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. How is it that Paul, the great saint, the great model of Christianity, is able to say to this church, whom he's hoping is going to listen to him, I stink. I'm the I'm the I'm the least of the least of all the saints. He's able to be open and honest and, and before them. He doesn't have to put on a facade. How is that? Because of this grace that was given to him. My friends, the church is to a place, be a place where we soak in the grace of God. It's to be a safe place um, where we can be seen underneath the surface. It's a, it's a place where we can come and to speak the truth to each other and to speak it in love. That's the first key. The second key relates to anger management. We are not to be an angry people. We're to be forgiving and loving and accepting. Verse 26 and 27, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. My friends, there's no place in the Christian life for uncontrolled or prolonged anger. Now, Paul does say, be angry. So in some way, anger is to be allowed, right? And it's true in the Bible, we do see it where this sense of anger, where this reality that anger is, a, there's a, a thing called righteous anger. When we witness injustice, or when, we, when we witness corruption or evil, it's right to be angry. The great theologian John Stott, who passed away not too long ago, he used this text to argue that Christians should be angry. And he says the person who does not get angry does not care. And so the Christians ought, ought to get angry about injustice, poverty, racism, lies, and abuse. Right? Not all anger is sinful. There's such a thing as righteous anger. The problem is, that's usually not how we become angry. And Paul is, Paul, primary point of Paul in this passage isn't to promote anger, but to prevent it in our lives. You see, righteous anger is hard to identify. We tend to think that all the time that our anger is righteous. 
Oh, we're justified in every instance. And therefore, when we're angry, we are justified to be angry. Truth is, though, most of our human anger is far from anything godly. Most of it is rooted in selfishness, sinfulness, a desire for power, brokenness. Anger tears and rips and shreds relationships. In our text here, the verb be angry, it's, it's in the passive voice, which denotes that this, is, that, 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 that this is an anger that's been provoked, right? This, this is like when the boss gives the big new account to his son. <laughs> it's like when the teacher calls you out in front of a group of people for something that you never did. There's a provoking that takes place. It's unavoidable. Events happen in a blink of an eye and then sitting in your lap is anger. Paul's not denying this reality, but he's saying when that happens, do not sin. He says, don't give space for the anger to fester. That's what verse 27 is about. Paul says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. Um... And the big lie that we hear in our anger is that we are justified. That person ran through the stop sign. They should have stopped. It was my turn, right? You've wronged me. If, 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 if you would have done as you should have done, I wouldn't be in this situation. I'm justified to be angry at you. Paul says... Shows us that our anger festers. And, and when anger, though, the proper thing to do is, is not to give space for it. So how do we keep our anger from becoming sinful? Well, there's a couple ways not to. Psychologists say that there's basically two unhealthy approaches to respond to anger. One is expressing it. That's to shout it out. Uh, and the other is to suppress, suppress it, which would be to, to shout it in. Often when we express our anger, we, we shout it out. Something within us boils. We give room for our anger and we start yelling and screaming. Our words are, we, we throw around biting words which hurt and we, we throw around things which hurt, right? We stomp our feet. We feel justified in it and we scream. People who yell and scream think that this is a healthy way of venting their anger, but actually studies show, research has found that venting is perhaps the worst strategy for managing your anger. It tends to escalate the situation, right? And over the long term, it leads to even increased aggression. Shouting out tears apart community. It's to be avoided. It's not the healthy way to handle our anger. Not only we're not to shout it out, but we're we also, when we don't shout out, we tend to shout in, don't we? Sometimes we tend to internalize our anger. This is usually when our anger is directed at someone who's in a position of authority over us, right? The same husband who can scream so loud that spittle comes out of his mouth towards his wife. The next day in the office, just keeps his mouth shut. When his boss takes him off and he walks out silently. It's the same thing. It's the same anger. Neither of these are permissible. Neither of these are good. Some people think that suppressing your anger is a good thing. That it, uh, but studies show that it actually causes you to seethe on the inside. It, it tends to cause you to eat away on the inside. And it darkens your soul. It causes you to withdraw from people. It causes you not to speak the truth in love. But rather withdraw and hold people in judgment and condemnation. 
It tears apart community. Those are the two ways not to. You know, this text assumes that people and circumstances will anger us. It assumes that. But anger must not take up residence in our lives. Instead, Paul says what? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, some people get this wrong. Some people say, what Paul means here is that by the end of the day, I have to resolve my troubles with whoever. If it's my spouse, I've, everything's got to be worked out and everything fine before, before we go to bed. We've got, we got to kiss and make up and, and hug and go to bed. All, all happy, right? But that's not what the text says. The text doesn't say to resolve your problems. The text doesn't say do not let the sun go down on your unresolved conflict. No, it says what? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Christian, at nightfall, the reason for your anger may still be there. The reason for it, whatever provoked it, the unresolved conflict. But your anger must be gone. That's why it's so challenging. Paul says that our anger is like a ticking time bomb. Therefore, we must put a deadline on it. Now, this doesn't mean you're allowed to be angry up until like 8.30, right? And then so, you know, it, you know, 8.28 is when you say, all right, now I've got to spend time not being angry. No, the point is, don't give room for your anger. Uh, put your anger aside. That doesn't mean you still won't have to resolve some sort of issue. But you're to approach people differently. Remember, you put off the old, you put on the new. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul writes, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. What does that mean? It means that, yeah, there are circumstances. You're going to be involved in people's lives who are really difficult and hard. Maybe even Christians who are very difficult people. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. This means we soak in the gospel of grace. Instead of shouting out or shouting in, we are to soak in the gospel Three things we can soak in specifically. One is this. We need to remind ourselves that, that we live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by fallen and broken people. Some who sin willfully and un, some who do it accidentally. And guess what? We too are fallen, broken people. Right? We need to be reminded of that. Also, we need to be reminded that, that justice is ultimately in God's hands. Every careless word will someday be in the courtroom of heaven to be ruled upon. Every action that, should, that causes you to get angry, God is going to take care of someday. That's what the gospel tells us. And so that allows us to put it in God's hands. It allows us to be merciful and forgiving, just as God has been to us, which is the third point. We need to remind ourselves that we are recipients of God's grace. Though we have deserved condemnation, he has forgiven us through his son. And it's not something we have earned. It changes how we speak towards other people. The third key is what I call productive generosity. When we soak in God's grace, it produces in us a productive generosity. Instead of laziness and thievery, we become those who labor diligently. Why? So that we may share with others. 
That's what Paul is getting at in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, some of you are thinking, ha, I'm not a thief who steals, so this must be for somebody else. But let me ask you this. Do you have any software on your computer that you haven't paid for? Any music? Do you share a Netflix account? Right? Do you, at work, have a budget that if you... Don't spend it all by the end of the year. Well, then you won't get the same amount next year, so, so you spend it all. Do you have a business where you pay cash for your employees? Or do you have a business where you take cash so you don't have to pay the taxes on it? You know what you're doing? You're stealing from other people. University professors Sebula and Fahey published a study a few years ago where they estimated that 18 to 19 percent of the of the income in America isn't reported. And that this underground economy totals two trillion dollars and the unpaid taxes on this under, underground economy is five hundred billion dollars. If everyone in America paid their taxes and didn't steal from other people, didn't pay under the table, all of our taxes would be considerably cheaper. Or consider this. Do you routinely show up 10 minutes late to work every day? Do the math. 10 minutes a day, 5 days a week, 50 weeks a year, we give you 2 weeks off. You know what that adds up to? 41.6 hours a year. 10 minutes late to work every day, you're stealing a week from your employer. Some people say, well, the boss really doesn't care. Well, that may be true, but you should care, right? You, Christians should be the ones that, that model diligence and discipline and faithfulness, who work hard. And honor their superiors. The boss shouldn't have to make excuses for you. The boss should be praising you. Right? So there's many ways in which we, we're guilty of thievery, right? Um, so this, this text is really for us. Paul admonishes, is, admonishes us no longer to steal, but to labor doing honest Work. Why? So that we can say, I'm an honest worker? <laughs> is it so that, you know, we can retire and say, I made an honest living and look at my nest egg? No. What is his purpose here? Paul says that we are to be productive, not for our own benefit, but so that we may bless others with our abundance. My friends, the gospel is so counterintuitive. It's so anti-culture. It says we work so that we can bless others, not ourselves. We need to soak in that. Verse 28 says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When we soak in the gospel, we find ourselves moving from being takers to givers. One commentator summarized saying this, that our goal is not enjoyment. It is productivity so that we can give. We do not exist for ourselves, but for relations with other people and with God. In the book, Your Work Matters to God, the authors point out that we have been created in the image of God to enter into his creative activity, that is, work. In failing to be productive, we fail to live up to our vocation 
as humans. Studies show recently that more and more young, middle-class men have put off responsible jobs and more and more accepting undemanding jobs in which to earn a living. It's, it's good enough for them. They've come to realize that by, by not having all these demands placed upon them, I just work this little bit easier, simpler job. I can still afford a nice apartment, uh, a nice car, a uh, big TV, and, and even a woman who will marry me. Studies show that we hit a level of work where working just a little bit longer, a little bit harder, isn't worth it. People think that they've done enough to cover their own needs sufficiently. In contrast to this, in our text, Paul uses the Greek word for work that carries with it a sense of laboring until exhaustion. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the verb here also connotes a sense that this is now to be the ongoing reality in the Christian's life. Instead of laboring just enough to cover what's sufficient for our own needs to make us happy, we are to work and to labor hard so that our lives will be a blessing for others. The gospel is challenging, isn't it? It calls us to a way of living that's totally different than the world that we are in. Thank God the, the old self has been died in Christ and we're now alive in this new self. Because I don't know how this could ever come about unless God by His Spirit and by His grace works this into our lives. So consider your own life. Do you, do you labor honestly? Do you give your, your best? And who is it that you work for? Do you work simply for yourself and for your family? Or, or do you work so that you may, hard so that you may have something extra to share with someone else in need? It's a pretty tough text, isn't it? The next key is edifying speech. The word edifying comes from a Latin root, which means to build up. And Paul is talking about edifying speech here. He exhorts us to edify others with our words. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good as for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear the word corrupting here is a Greek word, sapros, which, which means uh, rotten or, or decaying or putrid. Uh, here in this sense, it's conveying words that are unwholesome or, or evil, evil speech. This would be obscenities, uh, abusive language, spreading of gossip, ridicule, mocking, these kind of things. Paul writes, let no rotten words come out of your lips. Let you think on that. What in your life is rotten in the way you speak? Words have power. Consider, consider the very first work of God in the book of Genesis. What, what happened? God spoke and the universe was created. Words have power. The, the power to build up or the power to tear up. Uh, this past week, uh, an example of, of this. We were bowling. Guys night. We were in Riverhead and it's the new bowling alley. At least, I don't know. I suppose he's been there two years. It's new to me. It's a great place. I encourage you to go there. So the first game of bowling that we had, it was just like, you know, man against man. It was just like 
all of us going to see if we can get the highest score. We had prizes for who was best, and we got a little prize for the, whoever was worst, and uh, I didn't get either of those. But, so, but after that game, we broke up into teams, and uh, I was thankful because I had Frank Krzyzewski on my team. <laughs> Frank, Frank started off a little slow. But towards the end of, I'm talking about the first game, we divided into teams that were supposed to be equal. And in the first game, uh, Frank, he started off slow, but he came on strong. And he was just like nailing these strikes like nothing. And so when we broke off into teams, you know, I, I said, I gave him a little pep talk. I'm like, Frank, it's something along the lines of, you know what? You are on a, you are a rising star. You are, the way you finished that game, with you on our team, we're going to win. You're going to do, you know. And I was like pumping him up. And guess what? We won by like 100 points or something, right? So... Perhaps you're, perhaps you're thinking, you know, Frank probably didn't need the pep talk. He probably didn't. Probably still would have done great. But what if I were to say to him, Frank, you know what? That was lucky, that first game. You know, uh, I don't see you performing like that in this next game. So uh, maybe you could switch and go to the other side or something. Now, if I would have, those have been words that would have torn him down and torn him apart. Our words have the power to build up or they have the power to tear apart. Paul says we're to soak in the grace of God so that we will have words of grace to give to other people. Isn't that beautiful? Look at this. It says that it may give grace to those who hear. You are surrounded by people in this church right now who need to hear God's gracious words from your lips into their very lives. They are here. You have the power to bring God's grace to his people that he loves and cherishes. We need to start seeing that our mouths are powerful instruments. God desires to redeem our tongues so they can be used as great encouragers to the body of Christ so that his body may be built up and they may flourish in this, in this world which needs Christ. We also see that edifying speech is meant to unify us together. That's what verse 30 is about. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. First, a theological point. Some people have a hard time visualizing the Trinity, right? I don't see in the Bible where God, you know, God is one, but yet God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we see it in this passage, right? See, you can't grieve an impersonal force. You can, something must have personhood in order to be grieved. God the Father has has been grieved and it's possible to grieve him. Jesus was grieved as he walked on earth and so too the Holy Spirit. It's possible to grieve the, the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the divine person of God who, who came and gave life to your flesh and caused you to, to relish in God's grace and gave you new spiritual birth. The Bible says elsewhere that, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit unites you to Christ and, and he unites you to each other. And Paul says that he has sealed you for the day of redemption. You know, uh, cattlemen will, will brand a cattle uh, with their own specific brand so that everyone knows uh, the ownership of that cattle. So too, God, by his Holy Spirit, has sealed us in a mystical, powerful way, sealed us as, as his. And, and, and that's, that means that we are being cared for until the final day of redemption when God renews and restores the entire cosmos. And so here's the point he's making. This Holy Spirit unites us together. 
And so it's possible by our words, by our conduct, by our actions to grieve the Holy Spirit. I once got a butt call. You know what that is, don't you? That's when you know, someone doesn't mean to call but their phone's in their pocket and they accidentally hit the button and it dials. For some reason it dialed me. You should have heard the stuff I heard. This is a man many people consider to be a godly man screaming and yelling at his wife. And she was screaming back. I held it in my hands. I'm like, what should I do with this? It hurt just to hear it. Finally, I had to hang up. It caused me such sorrow and grief to hear that. My friends, if it's possible for me, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, to feel that grief, is it not possible that the Holy Spirit himself is grieved by the crap we say and do, the anger, the bitterness, the careless words? Yes, it grieves God. Our rotten speech grieves God. We need to soak in this reality that, that of the gospel, that the gospel says we're united uh, to each other, we're united to God by the Holy Spirit. He sees and knows and experiences everything. Christian, know this God wants your best. He wants you to experience a flourishing life of holiness and purity in all areas. He knows that this is best for you and for me. And yet, when we, when we find ourselves soaking in the ways of the world, uh, we, we find that we, we grieve God who loves us and cares for us. This should be a sharp rebuke to us. We shouldn't be settled at night. We shouldn't walk out of here and go, well, I got grace. God forgives me. No. Yes, he does forgive you. We do have grace, but we can't use that grace as permission to grieve him. This last section summarizes this grace-centered community. We see it in verses 31 and 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Pack it up. Put it in the pod. <laughs> ship it off somewhere. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness. Do you, do you want to know how you're to know if you're bitter towards someone? Well, if something good happens to them and it upsets you, you're bitter. Bitterness feels good in the moment. Someone ticks you off, you feel justified. And maybe you are. Maybe you're 100% justified in your anger towards them. You feel like they should just be plucked from the earth, or at least plucked far, far enough away where they don't influence you. you. You wish that they were as good as dead. That's what bitterness broods in us. It causes us to fester. And it turns you into a bitter root that needs to be plucked out. Do you see the, the progress that takes place in these words? Each, each word goes from an inner feeling and moves progressively towards more of an outward display of emotion. Check this out. Look at it. It says, bitterness. Bitterness turns to wrath. Wrath is the feeling that something deserves justice. And you are the one who has determined that. And you are brooding in this wrath towards somebody. That wrath turns to anger. 
Anger leads to clamor. Clamor is an outward, noisy expression of dissatisfaction. And tell me this. When someone's clamoring, are they able to find other people who like to clamor too? (laughs) Right. Clamoring people like company in which to clamor with, which leads to slandering, which leads to acts of malice. Paul says all of this must be put away. All of it must be put away. And in its place, Paul exhorts us, one, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The kind person has a disposition that's what? Its knee-jerk reaction isn't towards anger. The kind person's knee-jerk reaction is to be gracious. To, to give the benefit of the doubt. To not assume. To not let their mind go running with all these rabbit trails of perhaps what, what, whatever happened. And the mind gets all worked up. You've done that, haven't you? The kind person has a disposition of graciousness. And then Paul says, tenderheartedness. Tenderhearted person is someone who's quick to be empathetic. Yeah, they see what you're doing. They know you're a sinner who needs God's grace. They're empathetic. They're tenderhearted. And with these two, but there's still one element missing from the, from the, from the bread we're breaking. Uh, the grace of God is the yeast uh, uh, that, is, that is to work into this tenderheartedness and this... And this um, this disposition of graciousness needs to flow from from the gospel. Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It brings us back where we began. We're, we're to soak in the gospel. This grace has been given to us. That's the great, that's like the great, like, smelling salt, right? We're all angry. Ever seen, you know, some of you don't know what smelling salts were. You used to get knocked out playing football, and they would crack this thing. It smelled putrid. And, and you'd rub it in front of your nose, and, and the odor of it would just cause you to wake up from, from being knocked out. All right? The, the gospel is smelling salts to our anger, right? It's meant to go, come on now. You've been forgiven. You've been offered grace. Now offer this grace to others. You know, you want to be angry and wrathful towards that other person? You want that other person as good as dead? Well, remember what I wrote earlier. Paul said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. And then he goes on to say that we are God's workmanship created uh, in Christ Jesus for good works which God has ordained beforehand for us to walk in. My friends, uh, a bitter Christian is an oxymoron. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. When you find yourself with that attitude in your heart, we need to be reminded that we have been forgiven. We need to be reminded of the gospel of grace. We need to soak in it. Now, I'm not sure if... Anybody here at the end of the day, at the end of this message, likes tofu more or less? Maybe you are going to go out and have some for lunch, maybe some for dinner. Uh, what I hope we've seen this morning is that what we need to soak in as God's people is the gospel of grace. That we are a people who've been forgiven much. Therefore, we are to be a people who are to forgive much. And we are to seek to practice these keys of living in community. As we, as we seek them out by, by, by God's grace, in His power of the Holy Spirit, we become transformed more and more into people who have an aroma of Christ Jesus in this world. And it builds up our relationships together. 
as we come to the Lord's table, let us be reminded that, that God has given us an answer to all of life's trouble, and it is his gospel of grace, that we are forgiven in Christ, that, that Christ has brought us peace with God, and that he continues to do so through this same gospel. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our tongues are impure, that our hearts are often places that harbor bitterness. We need your gospel. We thank you for this text which reminds us of the abundant love that we've experienced. Um, May we, as your people, be transformed by your love for us. May we be a people who who don't have to put on acts, but can rather speak the truth and love with each other. We can be known and, and know each other. Uh, that we can grow in holiness and righteousness. And that this world would know um, who your people are. And that this world would know you through us. We pray. Amen.